Amen. Thanks, Adam. <clears throat> if you've got a Bible, open it to John 7. If you've got a pew Bible, that's probably page 1627, though there are a few Bibles up there for which it would be 1522. Uh, Two quick preacher announcements. I just want to um, thank you guys. Like Adam was talking about our generosity as a church. Um, Adam and Michelle just got back from a week debrief in Colorado where they got to debrief like their last 10 years in ministry to kind of prepare for their time here at High Point. Adam's newer if you don't know that. And um, a lot of churches just don't do that. They can't afford it. They wouldn't do that. Um, last I knew, between 1,800 and 2,400 pastors leave ministry in America every month because they spend all their time effort, heart, caring for people, and people just don't go the extra mile to care for them, and they just, they just burn out. And so we want to make sure that's not the case. Also, I mean, uh, Mike Beresford is just coming to the end of his sabbatical that this church gave him. He was in ministry for 40 years, had never taken a sabbatical. No church he'd ever been a part of had ever offered him one. And he's tan and fit and has caught up in his life and has <laughs> new vision, I think, for this next season of ministry. And so I just am so proud of the, the generosity and the care not just the generosity to give financially, but the care that nobody's like, well, why does he get that? And like, I don't have a sabbatical at my job. And like the attitude that you guys have to want to be, um, to care for the people that are leading. I just really appreciate that so much. So really proud to be part of that. Um, preacher, preacher announcement here. Um, every fall, we have a leaders retreat at Camp Forest Springs. Um, and generally speaking, we normally just invite people who are in particular places in leadership. And um, this year, we want to open it to anybody who's volunteering regularly. We're going to have a retreat on October 20th to the 22nd. And we'll have a worship service there at Camp Forest Springs. Um, there's some fun time, but there's a lot of teaching and just like training how to do ministry. A lot of it is like personally for you. It's, a, it's meant to be a refreshing time for you. There's like worship and prayer times and stuff like that. This year, we're focusing on anxiety and how, to, how it's affecting like our culture, our kids, ourselves, our small groups, everything that we do in ministry. And like that God has given enormous resources for dealing with this stuff in our faith. And um, I think it's gonna be extraordinarily helpful for the people that go. So I hope you, I hope you look at it. You can go to highpointchurch.org slash leadersretreat. I think is that, maybe that's, a, that's not up there. Highpointchurch.org slash leaders retreat and, um, and sign up to go. We'd like, love to invite you. If you volunteer regularly, you're eligible to come and we'd love to have you. So um, please come. All right, I'm gonna start reading in verse 24 of chapter seven. Ready? Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Okay, all the rest of the verses I'm going to read are examples of that, okay? That's the verse that tells us what all the rest of the verses mean. All right? Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem begin to ask, isn't this the man that they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from. And when the Christ comes, no one will know where he's from. And then Jesus, still teaching in the temple, courts cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. And still many in the crowd put their faith in him. And they said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? 
The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent the temple guards to arrest him. And Jesus said, I'm with you for only a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we can't find him? Will he go to our people, living scattered among the Greeks, and teach the Greeks? What did, what did he mean when he said, and you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from him, from within him. And by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Christ. And still others asked, How can the Christ come from Galilee? Do not the scriptures say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean he's deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Has any of the rulers of the Pharisees or the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. There it is. All right. One of the things that I've noticed about human beings is we think of ourselves as kind of dry creatures. You know what I mean? Like, we mostly experience our skin first, you know, and we're like, I'm kind of dry. I'm a dry creature, right? Like, and even when we get wet, and like people are like, well, I like to get in the water, you know? It's like, yeah, but then you like to get dry after, you know? Or like, like Wisconsin, it gets like, you know, in February, you get that like sticky snow that's great for snowball fights, and you go out and you get like all like cold wet, and then you, you like, you come in and you like get all dry and like get some hot cocoa or something, or you, you like get in a ba hot bath, but then you get dry, and you're like, oh, I'm dry, right? <laughs> and you sit by the fire all dry, you know what I mean? And and so we just kind of like, that's just how we think about ourselves. And then, like, the, the reality is like, we're like, we're like one of the wettest things on earth. You know? We're just like, we're just like, like dryish skin encasing basically water. Like, we're just like full of water. Like, it's be like 70% of your body's water. You know, it's like, well, yeah. And like 90% of your lymphatic system and like most of your blood and almost all of your lungs and like basically your kidneys. You're just all water, you know? You're just like, you're like, you're like, there's this meme on the internet just designed to make you feel viscerally uncomfortable. Your bones are wet right now. <laughs> right? It's like, some, pe some people are like, yeah, no done. Some people who are like, have emotions are like, yeah, that, that's kind of weird, you know? <laughs> what this has led to is like all kinds of, of like water drinking health kicks. So like you got to drink some more water. Like, it's like the new purse. It like, it accessorizes with yoga pants. You know what I mean? It's like the new, the, like, the new, like, you know, hip woman purse is like a big, like, abnormally large, let's be honest, 
thing of water with a straw in it, like, the, like you're nine. You know, it's like, I've got my big thing here. I'm not going to lift it all the way up because I don't want to have an abnormally large shoulder, but I'm going to sip out of this thing like all the time because water is so important and you can't believe it, you know? And it's like, you know, there's fountains. There's like water everywhere. You're going to be fine, right? But, it, but it's like, it's a real thing. It's kind of like, you know, you got you to drink some water. Um, one of the things that because we think we're dry creatures, even though we're not, one of the things that we don't realize is that like, if you haven't lived in like a, like a dry place and been like dried out, you're kind of like, you just kind of take it for granted. You don't realize that water is like literally the foundational element of life and the sustaining of life. It is in some ways like the perfect metaphor for what it would mean to be alive and to stay alive and to like do okay in being alive. Right? In fact, it's, sometimes we just think it's like, well, yeah, it's the water. You just you drink it, right? It's like, yeah, I get it. Sorry, I'm just having so much trouble with this thing. Okay. But it, it's, a lot, it's a lot more than that, right? Like, it's not just you drink water to live and not die. Like, you, like you need to, you, I mean, you can go like 50 days, depending on how, like how much storage you've got, right? Like, without eating. You go a long time without eating, right? I remember taking one of my survival classes. They were like, first is, first is injury. Second is shelter. You can freeze to death really fast. Third is water. They're like, food is way down there. You can eat almost anything. You can eat dirt. You can eat grasshoppers. But you're like, you don't even need food for a long time, right? What you need is, but you need water. Because three days or so, and you're going to die, right? But it's a lot more than that, right? Water is refreshing. Water is what makes any place where we live habitable, right? Water is used in healing. Like when I, when I cut some of my thumb off with a skill sottler earlier this year, one of the first things the nurses did when I like went in to get, they, just, they got a bunch of water. And they claim, and that's basically all they did. Okay, I don't want to show you the bill for that visit, but basically what happened in that visit was they poured some sterilized water on my finger, right? And then they put a little cloth on it, right? And, but, but like water is used in healing and should be. It's good for healing, right? And it's used for cleansing. And not just like, in, like you get in the shower, right? And you use it for cleansing, but also like in almost every spiritual tradition, and even some just kind of like, even quasi-spiritual, like emotional traditions. Like people like, like you go on the internet and it's like, there's like these like water cleansing fountains. You can go to ashrams and you can like sit under the cleansing water coming out of the fountain. You know, it's like, you know, like that's so American, you know. But it's like, but it, you can, that tactile experience of the water washing over you. Like, like there are people like they do stuff they're not proud of. And one of the things they do without even hardly thinking about, it, they'll go straight home and they just, they'll get in the shower and they'll just stand under the water. Because emotionally it's kind of like, it almost feels like this could cleanse me somehow. Does that make sense? And then, like, also, when somebody comes over, what's the first thing you do when people come to your house? Would you like, would you like a drink? Can I get you some water, right? And we do it kind of like, well, you just, just people do it. You're trying to show, you, you want to be nice. But, like, for most of the history of the world, that was what you needed to offer somebody when they came in your door, right? And then it's true, it's true for civilizing. Like, if you want to think, like, where, why are the cities, the human establishments in the world, where they are? The answer is almost always water. Right? The great ancient civilizations between the Tigris and Euphrates, rivers. Right? Ancient Egypt on the Nile, and so on. Babylon was built literally on a river. Right? It's what allows for civilization and fertility and growth and flourishing and so on. It's important to recognize this because in sort of the climactic moment of this passage, Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said— Streams of living water will flow from within him. Now listen. <clears throat> I don't—obviously this is a metaphor, okay? Like my pants are dry. I believe in Jesus, and there's, you know, it, 
it's easy to miss the point if it's not literal for us because we're not really good at reading analogies, right? But what Jesus is saying is, is that if you believe in him, something is going to happen in you that is like a wellspring of life is going to—is not just going to like fill up a little bit, but it's going to flow like a spring, right? And, and it, this is as the scriptures have said. Now, this has led to some like, like critical angsty thought because can you think of like what verse Jesus is referring to when he says, as the scriptures have said, right? Like where does it say? And the answer is, there is not a verse that says, um, if you believe in the Messiah— streams of living water will come out of you. There's no verse that says that, right? And so in some ways, it's a little bit like, I think it's in Matthew's gospel where it says, um, and he will be called a Nazarene. And it's a quote like from the Old Testament. And there's no quotation in the Old Testament that the Messiah will be called a Nazarene, right? But if you think of some like rural town in Wisconsin that everybody makes fun of because they're like backwards and uneducated and they don't have all their teeth and like, you're just like, Nobody goods ever, because important people come out of important places, like Madison, you know? It's like important places, you know? And it's like, surely if there's like the new leader will come from like here, right? And not really. I mean, God doesn't think that way. God thinks that's stupid, right? And so he's like, no, like come from anywhere, right? And so Nazareth is like a byword. And then when you read about the Messiah in the Old Testament, the Messiah is like coming from nowhere. There's nothing special about him. He's not like— He's not born in like this like rich family. His parents have to give doves as the offering because they're poor and so on. It's like, and, and when Jesus, in John's gospel, one of the disciples are like, hey, we, we found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And the guy's like, from Nazareth? Like, can anything good come from there? And the disciple trying to get him to come, he's got nothing good to say. He's just like, you're just gonna have to get him to come see. Like, like, yeah, I get it. I get your prejudice against the idea that the Messiah is from Nazareth. Like, I get that. But you, let, let's meet him and then decide, right? Does that make sense? However, what this reveals is this. That Jesus, and then John after him, and they're encouraging us, they're just reading the Old Testament a lot better than us. You see, because we don't pick up on analogies very well, and those analogies don't do much for us metaphorically or, or analogically, because we don't believe them really deeply, and we don't live in a particularly dry land where flowing water is like fundamental to how we understand our existence. And so we just read over this stuff. But you start working your way through the Bible, and, and John like doubles down on this in Revelation. So the apostle John that wrote John also wrote Revelation. And he ends the book with this picture of the vision of the city of God, where Jesus is the light, and from Jesus who is the light flows a living river of living water, which nourishes the tree of life, which produces the fruit that feeds the nations every month, and the leaves are for the healing of all people, of all the nations. That it, it flows from the Lamb who is the light and the source of the river of life. In this chapter, the end of chapter 7 and the end of chapter 8, in the Jewish festival of Sukkoth, or of booths, on the second to the last day, there is the water ceremony where they go to the Pool of Siloam and they scoop out water, right? Water from the spring that feeds the city, the living water. And they take it to the temple and they pour it on the altar to celebrate that God has given the water of life. And then the very next day, they basically light the whole temple on fire with these big oil abras, so that everywhere in Jerusalem and the surrounding regions, you can see, it looks like the city is on fire. And on that day, in John 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The end of Revelation, the very end. The light, who is the Messiah, from him flows the river of living water. 
Why does John so key on this? Why does God give that to him in the vision of the apocalypse or the revelation, right? Now, as you work your way through the Bible, though, in the Old Testament, this is this critical theme. For example, if you remember being with us in the, in the Ezekiel series last year, right? At the very end, you go through all these like crazy visions and just like, and there's at the very end in chapters 40 through 46 or so, there's this new temple and there's like all these descriptions about what God is going to do. And then at the end it says, what's going to happen is a river is going to flow from the mountain of God. Half of it's going to flow to the east and to the Dead Sea. Half of it's going to flow into the Mediterranean the other way. And it's going to make the Dead Sea a place where there's all kinds of awesome fish. And the, that, that is when God inhabits his temple, life is going to flow everywhere. And the analogy of that, or the picture of that, is the flowing of living water from the rock of God himself. Does that make sense? Now remember, all of Israel is fed by the Jordan River, right? Jordan sounds like a cool name. Oh, let's name our daughter Jordan, right? Okay, Jordan is a composite word, Jordan, down from Dan. That is, there's this big mountain, Mount Gerizim, and for some reason, there's this enormous spring at the bottom of it where water just bubbles up out of the ground and just flows down from Dan and waters this otherwise desert country. So much so that there's this huge lake, the Sea of Galilee. And to this day, um, Israel not only fulfills its water agreements with this, this country of Jordan, but gives them about four times as much water as they've agreed to, because they can. Because there's so much water just flowing down from Dan, from Mount Gerizim. Their whole conception is living water is this water that bubbles up and flows right? Which is the opposite of the demonic conception of water in the sea, right? The sea is like, it's not flowing. If you don't drink it, it's salty, and it, it will destroy your boat and sink you, and Leviathan lives in it, and it's chaotic, right? And that's why when you get to Revelation, it says there's no longer any sea, right? That, that chaos, that destruction of water is gone, but the living, flowing river of God is present, do you see how central that metaphor is to everything? And so in this, in Ezekiel 47, it says that when they got in that river, when you first stepped in, it's like up to your ankles, and then up to your thighs, and then it's up to your chest, and then you have to swim in it. Because the more you walk into the life of God, the more your life gets oriented into the life of God, the more you get in, the deeper it gets, and the more refreshing it gets, and the more filling it gets, and the more it produces in the world around you, right? If you move, think of Isaiah 55, which is one of the like key passages in the Old Testament towards God's invitation, he says this, Come, all who are thirsty. This is the voice of the Messiah speaking, right? Come, all who are thirsty. Come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. He says, eat, get, take what I give you and delight in the richest food that there is. But the metaphor about wine and food, what does it start with? That's what it means if you come to the waters of God. Does that make sense? And, <clears throat> and as you track this theme through the Bible— all of these themes about what, how water sustains life and gives life keep coming up again and again. Why are we talking about water so much, Nick? Like, good heavens. It's because this is the metaphor of Jesus in you. What will Jesus do in you? If you come to him, what will he do in you? All of it. Do you understand? He's trying to bring the maximal sustaining of life, the giving of life, the bubbling of the flowing of life out of you. He's not just inviting you to be saved. He's not just inviting you out of guilt and out of judgment. He's inviting you into life, and it is life given like water. That is everything. It starts with refreshing. It starts with you not just becoming so parched that you die. It starts with meeting you 
where you need to be met. But it moves on to civilizations and hospitality and love and care and all kinds of flourishing and fertility and life and food and enjoyment and celebration. Right? Isaiah 54. I will pour out water on the thirsty land, the streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees in the flowing streams. You see that connection between water and him pouring out his spirit? Right? As the scripture says, right? Isaiah 58. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy you in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You'll be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose water never fails. Do you see the metaphor here? It's like <clears throat> you can have a land, kind of like Israel is in some places, that just feels just, just rock. It's just sun-scorched. How does anybody survive? And the answer is when water just bubbles out of the ground, life happens. You could be in the middle of the desert. If for some reason there's a spring there, you have an oasis. Life is there. You can, it does not matter how difficult your culture is, how hard your family is, how bad your life is, what's going on in all these different things. If the life of God is bubbling up in you because of the gift of Jesus the Christ, you could be an oasis in anything. You can have life anywhere. You could be in any situation, and you could be alive. And you can see this in the writings of all kinds of saints who've been in concentration camps and have been separated from things and have lived in caves for decades and have done things where their lives were destroyed and wrecked and attacked and people who freely gave up everything to become monks and nuns to serve the poor and to be in places where they had nothing to call their own but just like a bed. And they found in their lives streams of living water, full flourishing of human life, far more happiness than people that were just trying to get stuff and survive in a sun-scorched land. Jesus is offering streams of living water to us. Does that make sense? <clears throat> in Joel 3.18, as you get to the end of the prophets, coming up to the time of the Messiah, he says, a day, In that day the mountains will drip like new wine, the hills will flow with milk, and the ravines of Judah with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of the Kiyas. Remember, Jesus says this where he's teaching where? In the temple. He's in the temple. He says, I am this. I am this river, right? In Zechariah 13, at the, getting the very end of the Old Testament, on that day a fountain will be opened in the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sins and impurities. So see how he's doing? He's actually overlaying the water metaphor with the sacrifice metaphor. Or to quote Isaac Watts, there is a fountain filled with blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins. And those who are washed in that flood are cleansed of all their guilty stains. Right? There's a healing and a cleansing that flows from the fountain, which is the water of God. But it is also the blood of the Son of the Lamb of God. So when you get to that river in Revelation, it's flowing from who? The Lamb who is the light. Does that make sense? And then just a chapter later, on that day, living water will flow out, of, out from Jerusalem half to the eastern sea, half to the western sea. In summer and winter, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. And on that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. You see, in some ways, God demonstrating that he is the Lord, that he is the king, is when he shows that we can live in him in any way, any place, at any time, anywhere. He can give us the internal resources of life so that no matter where we are, we can be his. And when you are his, and the place is least his, it shows that he is king. I think this is the last one. There's so many. In Jeremiah 17, the hope of Israel, right? He says, 
He said, what's the problem? Why is God upset in the book of Jeremiah? He says, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth that is buried into the earth, right? For they have forsaken the Lord. What is the Lord? Who is the Lord? The fountain of living water. And then, the, then Jeremiah calls out on behalf of anybody who would repent toward God. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me and I shall be saved. Right? And then lastly, when he's describing what does sin look like? What does sin look like when people will not turn to God, when they won't come to him and drink? He says it's like this. He says, has any nation changed this God even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this and be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. Okay, there's two evils here, not just one. One, they have forsaken me. Who am I? The fountain of living waters. Right? Two, they have hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold water. So instead of turning to God and drinking from him, who's the fountain of living water, they've made like little wells. And then they try to just get enough, enough of the rainwater they can get into those to get them through the seasons. And what God is saying is like that, that is no way to live. That's no way to live. You will find nothing but no profit in it. You'll find no abundance. You're, the cisterns of like all your self-salvation methodologies, the water slowly leaks out of them. And when you turn to them, there's nothing in them. I have this rainwater barrel where the, the, the spigot kind of drips a little bit. Just, just a little, just a tiny bit, right? And so then we get rain, and then I go to it for water like a week later, and just one drip at a time, it's empty, you know? And it's just, it's not there when I need it. It's just not reliable, right? But when it just rains on my garden, I can't lose that water. You know what I mean? And God, that's what God is like, right? And so you can see that John is trying to help us see this. He knows that we're thick. He knows we're prone to unbelief. He knows that we don't see the beauty and the glory of God saying, I am the water of life. And as he's walking through this, like first, Jesus is baptized in the water of cleansing, the water of identification, right? The water of um, like being under the Lord's leadership, Right? He is the Lord, right? You saw that in one of the passages. Like, I am God, right? And then, and then Nicodemus, right? He says to Nicodemus, he's like, look, you have to be born of water and the Spirit. Born of water and the Spirit. Now, people say, well, that's probably baptism and receiving God's Spirit, like salvation, right? Maybe. But people have always stumbled over what does water mean in that context. Well, one thing it might mean is John is already starting to work this theme, and he's saying it's the same thing. Being born of water— metaphorically, like in the Old Testament, right? And being born of the Spirit are the same thing. You have to be born of the Spirit. You have to be reborn in God. You have to come to me for the living water. And then that living water will flow through you like the Spirit. And you have to be born of that Spirit. And it's like being born of water, right? And then you get to the woman on the well, right? Who she's, she's, she's personally parched, right? She's got an outcast. Her sins have cut up with her. Her life has cut up with her. She's, she's discouraged. And he's like, look, I'll give you living water right? I'll meet you like at that first place of just like, I'm just tired and I'm just parched and there's no refreshment in me, you know? And then he gets to the man who's by the pool of healing, the water that periodically the angels will stir, particularly on particularly religious holidays. And if you get in that water, you'll be healed. And Jesus steps up by that pool who heals one person every so often, who knows, and, and stands and heals the man right by the water, right? And then he, right in this water ceremony where the priests take the water for the day of um, the last day, second to last day of the Feast of Booths, and they pour it in the temple. 
from a gold pitcher and they say, God, thank you for giving us the water we needed to live this year. Jesus says, I am the water of life. I will give you the water that you need. He's like trying to, trying to get us, because at some point with art is like this, like pictures are like this. There's some point where you kind of look at them and you look at them and you look at them. And there's some point where you sort of like get it and then they do something for you emotionally. Right? What you need to do if you belong to Jesus or if you're considering belonging to Jesus, you need to, you need to look at this thing God is putting out there. You need, you need to like look at it from some different angles and think about it in these different passages until it kind of like comes home to roost. And you're like, God with us is the water of my life. And if I, if I believe in him, if I really believe in him, it will not just be just barely enough to survive. It will be like there's like a little, a little geyser. It's like bubbling up and kind of spilling over and filling, beginning to fill the earth out of me. Does that make sense? And so you can see this is what Jesus says, right? If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Right? Is he quoting a scripture? Not really. He's just quoting all of them. Right? And he's saying that promise all through those prophets is for you, and it, he's saying it comes through me. He's like, if you want to know how do you, how do you become the heir or the beneficiary of all of those promises of life and hospitality and refreshment and hope, and this is how you do it. He says, you believe in me. That's how you do it right now, today, is you believe in Jesus, right? Now, um, <clears throat> That water is the Holy Spirit. What God is saying is, is that if you believe in Jesus, he will give you his own presence in the person of the Holy Spirit. Later in John 14, he'll explicitly say, he won't just be with you, but he'll be in you, like a fountain within you, right? And that that will produce life. And out of that life, you will have what, this, what John calls in later chapters, abundant life, a full life. But also the idea is that that water flows out from you towards other people. Other people are refreshed. Other people receive hospitality. Other people are civil, civilizationally brought in. Other people benefit from all the different kinds of fertility in your life. Everything begins to grow around you. It's like, remember like Moana, like the, the, like the nature god, and everything she touches, like stuff just starts growing. It, it almost feels like that. It grows slower. It grows a lot slower than that. That was the cartoon, okay? Right? But it's, it's almost like you're just like, you're, you're like walking and kind of seeds are falling off of you. And it's like, it's like you're a sprinkler and you're just walking around. It's like, and things just grow because of your presence, because streams of living water are flowing out of you and you've got an abundance. You've got enough for yourself and you've got stuff for other people too. And it's coming from God, right? And so that's the main point, right? God's life comes with God's spirit. Which is why faith is so critical. Remember, over and over we, we hear this objection from people. You know, this is so stupid that Christianity believes you're saved by faith, right? You can do all kinds of bad things, and then you believe in Jesus, and because he died for your sins, you get to go to heaven no matter how bad you are. You can do it on your deathbed if you want to. And then like, people can be basically good people most of their life, and if they don't accept your Jesus, then they're like going to hell or something. That just sounds awful, right? It's like, okay, first of all, God has the right to do what he wants in a certain way as long as he can portray it meaningfully as just, and he can chose to give mercy even in the midst of judgment. Otherwise, all there is is judgment, and nobody wants that, even the people who give that objection. So like, first of all, it's not as clean a thing as we would say. But, for, but secondly is this, is that faith, like the Bible talks about it, is not a game. 
It's not a game. It's not a lawyer's trick. It's this fully wholesome reality that when, it, when we have faith, it accesses salvation. That's correct. It accesses forgiveness. The, the death of Christ is applied to us and we're set free. But it, it's, also as, it's also in that event, it's also sobering to the human soul. Faith produces a transformation necessarily. This is why Jesus can have two caveats on salvation. You're like, what? There's no caveats on salvation. There's two explicit caveats on salvation. One is forgiveness, forgiving others. If you don't forgive others, Jesus won't forgive you. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, here's the thing. If grace hits you and you believe you've been forgiven, and you have any sense of what you've been forgiven of, everybody else's slight against you seems like a pittance compared to that. Does that make sense? And so if you can't forgive, you don't have faith. You've got to go back to the drawing board and have faith. Does that make sense? The other is, when Jesus says, if you don't confess me before men, I won't confess you before my Father. You, faith means you have the capacity to say, no, I belong to Jesus. I'm his. Like, do what you're going to do to me. <laughs> um, but I, I belong to Jesus, and I'm not going to pretend I don't. Because Jesus set, told the truth. He knew he, who he was sent from, and he told the truth no matter what anybody did to him. And that's why I'm saved. That's why I'm redeemed, because he did that. And I'm going to do that, and I'm never going to stop doing that. That does not mean you literally have to tell everybody about Jesus every minute. It just means at least when you get backed into a corner and you are pressured to disown the Lord, that you're like, I'm not, I'm not disowning anybody. <laughs> like, you do what you want. Misunderstand me how you want. Assume whatever you want. But I belong to Jesus, and I am not ashamed of that. And I never will be. Does that make sense? The reason for that is, is that the reason God can, God can say that through his Christ and not be inconsistent is because biblical faith, saving faith, has these transforming effects so that it brings about the wholesomeness of not just forgiveness, but restoration and flourishing and life and civilization and all of the ends heaven seeks. Salvation doesn't just forgive. It has to make people fit for heaven somehow. And only a transformative grace can do that. And therefore, faith saves. But it's also what creates the springs of living water. Right? If you, if you think about the context in Mark 4 where it says, you know, the sower goes out and he sows the seeds, and the first two seeds, we won't talk about those right now, but the, the third one, it's like the, the plants are growing up, but then the thorns come in and choke it out. And he's like, those are fears, the cares of this world, and desire for other things. There's stuff that chokes it out, right? Similarly, there's stuff that stops up the work of the Spirit to give us an experience of living water. And it's almost always a denial of faith in some way, right? I deserve to be angry with this person. And I'm going to be. Well, the Spirit can't flow through that. There's no faith there. Right? And so the, the streams of living water don't flow into you for forgiveness and to them for restoration and repentance. They just stop up. Right? Because the Spirit, when He flows, what He's doing is He's endorsing and strengthening something. When you act in faith and you believe God and you actually do what God says, the Holy Spirit can like wet that thing. So it's like, it's like you plant the seeds, you prepare the garden, and it's like, then the Holy Spirit's got the hose, right? And nothing happens without the hose. You understand? Not a thing. You can put all the stuff down, and you'd be like, why isn't it growing? It's like, I got the hose, and you just planted a bunch of thistles, and I'm not going to water that. Right? I ain't watering, I'm not watering your buckthorn. Right? 
You put down some corn or something, some beans, and we'll, we'll water the stew out of this thing. You know what I'm saying? And, and some of us are like, why does it, why does it God help me? I don't feel anything. It's like, listen, believe in him. Quit pretending it's like, it's like this, just, just, this, just like an altar call thing. It's just like, a, well, I trust in Jesus for my salvation. I believe. And then nothing in your life like risks in the direction of the will of God. Okay, Romans 12 says to believe, to offer our lives in spiritual service to God means that we unconform our minds from this world. We're transformed in the renewing of our minds in the mind of Christ. We see the will of God as good, pleasing, and perfect in God's eyes, and it's good, pleasing, and perfect to us. And then in humility and in love, bearing with one another, even loving our enemies, if you read the whole chapter of Romans 12, we step out in the risk of God in faith. And when we do that, the life of God, the, the overflowing waters of the Holy Spirit, water and confirm and flow and give us refreshment and joy and hope and trust and produce fertility and fruit and growth and even restore people to each other in civilization. But it's predicated on faith. Does that make sense? You have to believe in me, he says. And then as the scriptures say, the water of God will flow in you. And he means the spirit. Does that make sense? Now, what more can I have to say than that? Right? We should stop right there. Okay, in this passage, though, there are some just dumb objections. People, people find a way to be like, well, I don't want it to work that way. Listen, here's what you need to understand. If you think God works in a way where you can cheat, where it's clearly unhealthy, where it's pretty easy to be selfish, like just go through like the works of the flesh. Just, and if you can do that in whatever you think God's system is, you don't understand God, okay? God has a system that's incredibly gracious. It's free. Anybody can walk into it. Everybody can receive salvation who's willing to believe. It's wide open. It's entirely inclusive in its invitation. But it's structured in such a way as that it can't be rigged. You got to walk through the path as it is, right? The narrow path has a wide door to funnel anybody who wishes to come, and then you got to walk that path, right? Otherwise, you can love God and be just unjust towards others and, and not love. And, and God doesn't play that. He's, he's helping us move the way he wants to go, right? And so people are like, wait a second, I don't— well, The minute people see that, it's like the, I, I grew up on a beef farm, right? And like, there's this point where the cows are like, oh, there's some grain here. This is good. Let's go. And then they see that, the contraption that you're trying to get them into, and they're like, whoa, tiger. There's a point where like Christians are like, God loves me. That's kind of good. And like, oh, Jesus died for my sins. Well, I've done some bad things. That sounds fantastic. And it's like, and then ascribed across a, like a metal door is, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You know, it's like, like, they're just like, nope. And they start pushing back, you know. And it's like, there's this point, remember what God says to the Apostle Paul? It's not good for you to kick against the goads. Do you know what the goads are? They're like the little sticks that you use to drive cattle. Right? And so there's this point where he's like, well, God wants, God wants what? No. And you start moving back. And like, the farmer's like, no, you gotta, you gotta go in the, gotta go in the chute. You're kicking against the goads, right? And Paul's like, I'm not doing this. And God's like, no, you are. You are. Because it's the only way for me to remake you into the image of my son, into the human being you were always meant to be, now and forever, for the redemption of people around you, for the flowing of love, so that living water can flow into this world through your life. Like it flowed through my son. And then in his death and resurrection, through the Spirit, he multiplies it a billion times 
to everyone who truly belongs to him for the life of the world. I will pour out my flesh, he says, right in chapter 6 and 7. I will pour out my flesh for what? The life of the world. My flesh to give living water to everyone, right? So, and so people are like, oh, I don't know about this, right? And so they say, well, what about, well, I mean, think about this though. This guy, Jesus, he's doing all this stuff. But like, we know where he's from. He's like from Galilee. Like, there's no way he's like the Christ of God when he's from Galilee. I mean, that's like being, that's like being the next savior of the country from Janesville. You know, this is, come on. It's just like a priori impossible, right? Um, and, and, but then there's, there's like a more sophisticated version of this that you get at the end of the passage. So the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, these are like people with the PhDs. They're more sophisticated about it. They actually know more, but they're 100% is wrong, right? They're quoting the appropriate passage. They actually say, no, it's actually the opposite. If he's the Messiah, we would know where he's from. Because the scripture actually says that the Messiah would be in the line of David and from Bethlehem, the city of David. And if he's not in the line of David, he's not from the city of David, he can't be the Messiah. And he's from Galilee. Everybody knows he's from Galilee. And one of the fun things about John's gospel is nowhere does he tell you that Jesus is the son of David or that he's from Galilee. To the point where critical scholars who like disbelieve the Bible will say, look, the gospels are in complete contradiction with one another. Because in this one, it just objects that he's not from He's not a son of David. He's not from Galilee. And John apparently thinks that Jesus is still the Messiah, even though he's neither of those things. But Matthew and Luke go out of their way to prove that he's in the line of David. He's from Bethlehem. And like, it's so tedious how contradictory the Gospels are. You're like, wait a second. You can't be that dense. You can't be that dense. That John would bring up a problem and just be like, this is the problem. Here, I'll even literally quote the Old Testament passage that shows that if Jesus isn't from the line of David, he couldn't possibly be the Messiah. And then it's because I'm spending this whole book telling you Jesus is God's Messiah, and I'm going to intentionally lay something in there to disprove it, not comment on it, because what I was hoping for is in the 20th century, a bunch of super smart scholars would be like, hey, do you realize this is a contradiction? The whole point is the drama of it. Right? They don't know. And he doesn't even say. And they're like, now, by the time John's gospel is written, Matthew and Luke have already been written. It's reasonably likely Luke even knew they existed and maybe even had read them, right? Because some of the material is the same. He wants you to kind of struggle under it. Like the people, the people who said, wait, we shouldn't even know where he's from if he's like God's Messiah. Like you could see how that kind of has a feeling of like a priori kind of like reasonableness to it, right? Like he should be sexier than this, right? And then the scholars, you're like, like they're quoting real stuff. Like these are believing people. They're like, no, no, no. This literally says you have to literally be from the town of David. This guy's from Galilee. It's like a, it's a non-starter, right? And here's the problem. There's a, there's, there's a subset of the common people who are like, yeah, but he like, he like heals people who are like invalids for 38 years. So, I mean, what are we going to go with? Now, you see why this is important? Because if Jesus had said, listen, there's a broad misconception that I am from Galilee only. It turns out my mother and father are in the line of David, though our family has moved to live in Nazareth for certain reasons ancestrally. And during the census, remember Augustus, we, he doesn't cover any of that. It's just left. And here's why. Here's why. I think, I think this is why. Literally, John writes it this way. As he's like, your whole life is going to be this way. Your whole life is going to be this way. There are going to be objections that you don't know the answer to. There are answers. Just like Jesus was born in Bethlehem. 
He's in the line of David. It's not a problem. But you see, they think it's a problem, right? In, in, in 20 years of ministry, I have seen this a lot, okay? There are lots of objections people give to believing and trusting in Jesus with their whole heart such that they step out in the risk of faith, in the will of God, so that the living waters of the Spirit can flow in them. They get inhibited from doing so by objections that feel like they're good objections, but they're not fantastic objections. Some of them are. The Bible isn't reliable. We just covered that one a little bit. Jesus has never claimed to be God. I've heard that one so many times. It just boggles my mind. Read, the, uh, read, read John's gospel in some kind of context. Religion is bad for the world, therefore Christianity must be bad for the world. Christians are hateful. Look at their view on sexuality. Christians reject science, which is the real light of the world. That doesn't, if you're a walleye fisherman, that's not lake of the woods. That's um, light of the world. Um, Christianity degrades women. Christians don't really care about the poor. Christians don't really improve society. I don't need God or he shouldn't make me need him. That whole idea that I need him is like oppressive and coercive. Christianity is bad for diversity. Most of those, literally the opposite is true historically, empirically. Like empirically, Christianity is the best thing that ever happened to women on planet Earth. There's no question about that, right? There's no question about the fact that Christianity is the greatest thing that ever happened to science on planet Earth. No question about that, historically. You just got to be historically ignorant to not know that, okay? Um, uh, Christians, historically, have in basically everything we do for the poor that helps them, Christians invented. Hospitals, yep, we invented those. Universities, we invented those. Like, we just go through, like— like, not, I mean, not literally ever, like, we didn't invent the plow, let's say, right? But like, you like, look at what Christians came up with. A lot of that stuff came out of the monasteries. People who gave up everything in this earthly life and cared about the most common people and said, what can we do to help them? And they spent their creativity in community figuring out how to help these people. And so they came up with a bunch of stuff. Most people were fending for themselves, and so they didn't. And even things like academics and free markets and things like that that have enormously transformed human life for the positive in lots of ways came from the milieu of Christendom, which wasn't totally Christian, but had a lot of fundamental Christian impulses and influences that were absent in all of the rest of the world, which is why things arose there. Things did not arise in the West because the people there were Caucasian. People things arose there because Christianity, which came from Israel, which were not Caucasian people, got a cultural foothold there and changed the assumptions of people dramatically, and so created an environment in which certain things could flourish. And they did, and now everybody uses them, but that's where they were from. And most of these objections, I could go through, I mean, we could do hours on each one of them, but they feel like, well, isn't he— we shouldn't know where he's from if you know nothing about the faith. There, there are objections like that, like, what about blah, blah, blah? You're like, oh, that's a really silly objection. Like, I know people think Jesus—well, don't, don't most people think Jesus never existed? Okay, like, literally the most critical scholars I've ever bumped into think that there was a, a carpenter from Nazareth who was a teacher, and they, like, it's just a silly—you just have to be totally ignorant to not know that, right? But a lot of people think that because they've heard people say it, and that's all they know, and how much more should they know? And then there's people who know a lot. They have— like PhDs in biblical studies, you're like, these are very good objections. And you're like, well, I don't know. I've sat down read them and they're not great, you know? And, but here's the thing. I think John leaves out the spiking of the football because you're going to have to live with the fact that you have questions about these things. In your mind, right? Like if you're under, say, I don't know, 50, you probably have at least some significant emotional unease about the sexual ethic of Christianity and particularly how it relates to people who are oriented sexually towards people of the same sex. And what you're going to tell them. 
And what's that going to mean? And should you really stand up for that? And should you, like, that sounds like, that sounds hard. And like, can I really tell other people that? And what are we going to do? And how, blah, blah, blah. And you don't, and you like have an answer, like if you believe Jesus, and Jesus taught these things, and that's the answer. But you don't have an answer, like, how do I explain this to a person who's experiencing that? And then go, oh, that's a perfectly good response. Thank you so much. My life has completely changed. <laughs> Usually they're like, you're a jerk. Right? And like, and, and like, you're kind of like, am I a jerk? Maybe I am a jerk. Like, there's, there's unease in you about it. Like, you, you may like be at school, and like, there's like, your, there's all the scientific stuff you're dealing with, and you're like, is that right? And like, it just, does my faith believe in that? Or like, are these compatible or are they not compatible? Should I fight this or should I not fight this? And like, and you don't know the answer. You don't know the answer. For like 150 years, critical scholars in Europe said the Gospel of John could not have been written before 190 AD. There's no way the Apostle John could have possibly written it. It shouldn't even be in the Bible. It's not from John. You Christians need to grow up and be smart about this. For like 200 years, Christians are like, I, the universal tradition of the church is John wrote it. I think John wrote it. How to do? And then in the 20th century, a fragment was found in this dump in Alexandria, a desert area, with a few verses of John on it, undisputably dated to 128 year before. They were just wrong. But it seemed like sealed linguistic science, you know? It was just wrong. And that's happened so many times in critical biblical scholarship. Like the idea that like the city of Ai is just made up. Well, the, the city that was excavated and called the city of Ai turned out to not be the city of Ai. That's the problem. So like, it's not near a crescent and it wasn't like there and it wasn't like, it couldn't have been the city. Like it's described all wrong. It's like, well, 11 miles away, there's a little outpost that has direct sight to Jerusalem that was an outpost town for the kingdom of Jerusalem. It has all, it's right by a crescent. It, it's Ai. And the thing is, they hadn't dug up, dug up enough of the ancient world to know that. And so it's like, well, this can't be it. And it's like, well, we never know as much as we think we do either way. And see, the problem with this is, is that this is keeping people from believing in him, right? They're like, they're open to him, but they're like, ah, I got these objections. But some people are like, look, what Jesus said was that the Father sent him. That's where he's from, not Galilee. Like, he's from Galilee, but he's not from Galilee. He's saying, I am from the one who sent me. That's who everybody's from, is the person who sent him. And he's true, right? Because doesn't that sound like Matt? He's like, it's just like, they're like, where are you from? He's like, I am from one that's true. And you're like, Jesus, can you just put together a straightforward sentence? You know, but, but think about what he's saying. He's saying, he's saying, no, see, your problem is, is that you're like, where am I from? Like, and can you trust that person? He's like, yes, you can, because I am from the one who is true. That's all that matters. It doesn't matter what town I'm from. It matters who I'm from and whether that who tells the truth if I say what he says. That's all that matters. And ultimately what matters is his testimony about me, which Jesus says mainly is the testimony of his miracles. And so these people are like, well, the testimony is, boop. Like, he's doing these works. And you see, on one level, God is like, look, you're never going to have all the information. You're never going to have all of your mental disputes settled. It just, that's just not the way living in the world is for human beings. The question is, is the testimony of this Christ to you and his offer to give you living water if you will risk faith in him something you are willing to believe? Because you can always make objections. We're human beings. We have very creative minds, especially when we're protecting our sins. Right? 
I covered this already. And so at the very end of the chapter, one of the things— um, so Nicodemus, who we met in chapter 3, right? And he was, like, very quizzical. He says— he, he notices that the, sad, that the Pharisees and the, and the teachers of the law, they haven't actually gone and listened to Jesus at any point. They've listened to crowds talk about him, and then at some point, they just sent people to arrest him. <laughs> they, they never li- went to him and listened to him. And Nicodemus actually did that. Now, he did it in private, like, kind of cowardly-like, but he did it, you know? And he talked to him. He's like, huh. And so he's like, listen, does our law say we should condemn someone before really looking into it and seeing what he does? You see? He does. And they're like, you're stupid. Just go, go read the Bible. You have no idea what you're talking about. And that's what people will say, right? Because they're so sure their little logic run works. But it, it doesn't. Jesus did the works of God. Jesus told the truth of God. He's like, my life and my words and my actions, they speak for themselves. The details you're trying to apply to me and the adjudicated little objections that you're concocting are not nearly as good as you think they are. But you know what the real danger is? The real danger is, is that you're going to miss the appointed moment where you have somebody to see and believe it. He's like, I'm only going to be here for like a minute. I'm here for like a minute. And then I'm going to be gone. And you're going to be like, well, let's hear more from this Jesus fellow. And he's like, and I'm going to be gone. And you see, when you get to 2 Corinthians, Paul says this spiritually about hearing the gospel and having a moment where you could believe, where he says, don't you see, today is the day of salvation. Now is the moment of salvation. You see, the difficulty when you're like, I don't know, I don't know, it's like not every moment is the same for belief. Not every moment do you hear the truth clear enough. Not every moment is your heart disposed open to it. Not, not every moment is the Holy Spirit operating on your will in a similar way. And if you have the opportunity to see what's happening and to believe, you need to believe. And it's not because you couldn't believe tomorrow. It's not like some kind of like, like time sharing. It's like, we have to decide right now. You know, it's like, no. If I have to decide right now, the answer is no. It's not like that. It's like, listen, if you wait, you just won't do it. You don't, like, there's a part of you that doesn't want it. You're going to stop before the thing. You're going to kick against the goats. You're like, it's just, but if you have a moment where you have the clarity to be like, no, this is what I'm made for. I want streams of living water flowing in my life. Then believe in him wholeheartedly with all the risk that your will can generate towards everything that you know is his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And then like it says in the earlier verses, and then if you will his will, you will find out if he is from God. Lord God, we pray that you would, you would just help us. Um, we're rational creatures. We want to answer questions. We're people, though, who are living in a sun-scorched land that's parched. We live among a people who are in mental crises and emotional crises. We live in a time where people are angry, where there is no living water. There's a lot of empty, hewn cisterns in your church, in our culture, in all of our lives. And what we need is the flowing, living water of your Spirit rushing through us to produce all of the benefits you have so carefully promised through thousands of years so that we would know the beauty of the picture you lay before us. Help us to see in our minds now the, the desert of the, how we feel about ourselves and the oasis that water would bring even in a land that's scorched. There is fertility in us, bound up in the soil of who we are as human beings, and it takes your water to make it green. Help us at this moment, Holy Spirit, to believe. Help us to want the mind of Christ. Help us to want to risk in your direction. Help us to lay the soil that you want to water. Help us to believe in the Son of Man. In Jesus' name, amen.